Uh, what's going on, everybody? My name is Arjun Gupta. I play Penny on Sci-Fi's and the Magicians. And welcome to the Coffee Clatch Podcast. Get ready for a wild ride. The Coffee Clatch Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew, the Magicians episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we are reviewing episode six, Do You Like Teeth? Written by Noga Landau, directed by Carol Banker. IMDb gave this an 8.7. Yikes, that's down from a 9.5 last episode of Life in the Day, but hovering right around the episodes one and two ratings. Listen, 8.7 is still a good score. Absolutely. Very solid. And I thought this was a very solid episode. I'll be very honest and say I didn't like it as much as the last two because the last two episodes were some of my favorites in the Magician series ever. I mirror that completely. Last episode was probably my favorite and Be the Penny was my second favorite. I thought they had a lot of great plot points in here. In fact, maybe too many. There was a real lot going on and I felt at times as though there wasn't always smooth transitions and connecting points between them. It made me feel a little scattered and all over the place. But the individual elements were really great. And there was some character stuff that I was really enjoying. I want to say right at the top, I love what's going on with Quentin here. And I love Jason Ralph's performance. This is my favorite part of the episode. This is the Quentin portrayal I've been waiting for. Mm -hmm. I thought it really showed the essence of Q from the books, his struggle, where it felt like there were genuinely two different people on screen. This is the other Q that Q battles with inside of his head constantly. Yeah, I thought those scenes were very important, especially with the age group that probably watches the show. I mean, obviously adults watch it, we watch it, but I'm sure young adults watch it. And that's something you battle with, especially when you're going through puberty. It's very hard because your hormones are just so out of whack that this depression just hits you in the face. And The Magicians touches upon this oftentimes throughout the seasons, but I think this one was actually really bringing it home and bringing it to the forefront and showing how depression can work. And we'll go through that further when we talk about the key and when we talk about Poppy, because she even brings it up, how it affects people differently. Yeah, I I actually think it was a very mature subject matter that they were delving into. The way they handled it, I thought was definitely geared towards a certain type of audience, But what they were talking about, this is a really important topic that I feel a lot of people can relate to. At the very heart of what Q goes through, not just his selfish desires to be the hero of the story, which is a challenge for him, but the desire to find something better, to find happiness that he can never seem to get to because he's looking for it externally. Real quick, just (laughs) to reiterate, I'm not saying it's only for kids who are going through puberty. I, I just meant like that's when it's really prevalent, but we go through these oftentimes in life. But to go back to what you were saying, a lot of our characters battle that. And um, actually, we battle that throughout life. Oftentimes, we think, I'll just be happier if I get this. I'll just be happier if I'm able to afford this or do that. And you realize that's not the essence of your overall happiness. It's something deeper. But besides Q, Julia has been going through this so much. Season one, I would just be happier if I was accepted into break bills. Well, before that, I'll just be happier when I go to Yale and when I have magic and then on and on and on. But for her, I think ultimately that spark wasn't ignited until she found out about magic and magic was really at the bottom of all of this. I need to have that. Without that, something from my life is missing and I know it. 
and the entire struggle that she went through in the books, which we did see a lot of her searching out the hedge witches and trying to learn it on her own, being so desperate in her conversation with Quentin to let Breakbills take her in. This is what shocked me so much about her willingness to give up magic, no matter what she's been through. That was her life. The way Alice is expressing in the last episode, I don't understand what you're saying because magic is my life and I would do anything to get it back. That's her identity. And we did talk about last episode, the fact that her giving up the magic, we think is an extension of that now where that's going to give up that nasty feeling that she has or the the pain that she has from Reynard. And we had said that's not going to fix it. And even Reynard comes in to tell us the same thing this episode. So many things we've said throughout these podcasts, they talked about in this episode. There's a lot of dings in this episode. Yeah, really cool. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, she even knew when she was going through her conversations with the Beast and he offered to remove her shade for her, despite the fact that that would be a huge relief and she wanted the weight off of her of everything she'd been through, you can't take that thing from me. I need that. I even need the pain and depression and everything that comes with it because it makes me me. And yet now she's just looking for a way to transfer that out of herself. So I was a bit surprised by her willingness to do it. Well, because it's not about the magic. It's about what Reynard did to her. And it's about the fact that she feels like Reynard is in her still because of what Persephone did. Oh, sure, but it's the magic is a piece of her the way the shade was a piece of her, a very, very important part, and she wasn't willing to part with the shade, even if it brought her a huge amount of relief, probably more than what getting rid of magic would do, regardless of where that magic comes from. And even Penny is quite shocked to find out about this, and he has some rather harsh words for her, but I'm sure we'll get into that in the scene. We have a lot to talk about with Penny as well. Speaking of which, we're going to continue along in the same way, breaking up our plot. We'll do all our scenes on Earth first, then those in Whitespire and Fillory, and then those on the Muntjack. Muntjack's back. I knew it would be. I'm so excited. I had a feeling we hadn't seen the end of this boat yet. But before we get into it, let's talk new faces and places. We met our new character, Poppy Klein, played by Felicia Day. A dragonologist, postgraduate fellow, and field researcher from Breakbills. A lot of people were very excited when they found out Felicia Day was going to be doing this. I am very excited about Felicia Day. I am very much hating Poppy as of, of right course. now. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's something we should dive into. One, Felicia Day is amazing as an actress. Mm-hmm. She finds ways to make things that aren't really funny, funny. Just the way she acts. It's kind of like there's a little twist to her words twist yoga sorry stupid um she she was doing yoga remember (laughs) (laughs) um but also this character poppy i mean we hate her because what she did to q but we have to remember that she was on a raft for three days with her doppelganger her depressed doppelganger right there you can't run away from it and how do you not jump into the water on a little raft you feel like you're lost The doppelganger must have had so much to say to make her want to jump off. I don't feel like Poppy had that intense of a depression monster based on Poppy's character. True. Probably was a whole lot easier for her to deal with it than somebody like Quentin. Are you kidding me? I'm surprised Quentin didn't have five depression monsters. Poppy was always an interesting character from the books, and I was excited to see what they were going to do with her. She had a very strong personality. At times, it was very abrasive. 
she had opinions and ways she thought things should be done, a bit of an attitude on her. And yet she was often described as somebody who didn't really let things bother her, was just able to take things as they come. Okay, this is what I'm dealing with now. Let's go at it full force ahead. Mm. I don't want to say positive, but she didn't tend to dwell on any of the negative stuff. I know people like that. I envy them all the time. I'm like, man, you're just always happy. And so I think we do get a bit of that from her, but there's so much of this manipulative side of her that I didn't get any of from the books. Yeah, you might be right. She might be an issue, especially the way she ended up trying to leave. We'll go through that later. You you right away said she's playing cue. Oh, of course. This is not right. (laughs) From from the get-go, taking off her clothes, she was disarming him and gaining control of every conversation and really playing him. She did little things that were very socially calculated and worked very well. And there's got to be a reason why she's the only one that survived that boat. I'm sure it wasn't by luck. She must have done, you know, worked her way through to survive, but killed everyone else in the meantime. Yeah. See, in the books, her doing those things, you would just be like, that's Poppy being Poppy. You know, she's just very confident in herself. She's going to take her clothes off. No big deal. Here, you do get that feeling every action means something. And she's designed it to get a result that she wants. And especially with somebody like Quentin, let's face it, that's got to be a pretty easy roadmap for her to read. This is how I can play this Mm -hmm. guy. Yeah. And it's probably no coincidence that her favorite animal is a dragon. I mean, what do we know about dragons? Very selfish. They don't care about anyone else. They're hoarders, (laughs) right? In every story, right? Treasure hoarders? Yeah. And they'll kill anything that gets in the way. So maybe there's a reason why she loves those kind of animals. Mm. Let's move on to places. We had the abyss, an uncharted region of Fillory, in a stretch of ocean where it is permanently night. Very cool when Q is sailing towards it, the way they depicted it. Yeah, like a bubble. And we learn this is off the coast of the Truth Waters. Somewhere around there is the island where Poppy found the key that we'll talk about in a second. We also saw once more the Northern Orchard, however, this time looking a bit transformed, if you want to say. Next, we have Creatures, and here we met the Incubus, played by Ben Wilkinson. We were introduced to him because, according to Dean Fogg, in order to perform a voltaic transfer, you need the flesh of a magical creature to act as a semiconductor, preferably a potent energy drainer, like an Incubus. This character really played out to be a very funny scene with our two actresses. I enjoyed that scene tremendously. I thought that was the best humor of the episode. And I don't think we got a name for him other than the Incubus, but he was very good. And so that brings us to Spells and Magic, where we have the Voltaic Transfer, an incredibly delicate spell of prohibited magic that performs an electrical transfer of sorts. We learned that untrained magicians who attempt this have set themselves on fire or blown themselves up. Then Dean Fogg tells us about something called tolerance enchantments that he used to keep himself 38% more tolerant. Uh, We all know we could use that enchantment in life, huh? (laughs) I think I would up it even more than 38%. And finally, we have the fourth key. Yet again, Quentin finds out the information, tells Elliot where he thinks they can locate this. Of course, it's Poppy who actually finds it, In this island, which was a dragon breeding ground, 
and we learn the key takes the darkest parts of you and makes a depression monster who looks and talks like you, and while it can't actually hurt you, it gets into your head and convinces you to hurt yourself. And it only affects the last person who touched the key. It's like a game of hot potato. Hmm. And we're going to talk more about those keys later on. I know we said we would bring it up last episode, but we ran out of time. For now, let's jump into our plot. We open up on Earth with Julia and Alice looking for a spell that comes from an old hedge story about a transfer that Marina used to steal magic that people are still talking about. Alice is skeptical about trying to reverse engineer an urban legend, but Julia thinks it's worth a try. This is where they try several times to perform the spell using all of these different objects that they have. And after multiple attempts, the fish that they have starts mm-hmm. to sing. Remember those fish? Yes. I brought back memories. Except they sang something different. Of course. <laughs> Do you remember it? No, no. Take me to the river. At that, Alice pulls out the key, and they're able to see Penny, who comes in, saying he's been trying to warn them about this spell. He's seen it in person when a couple months back on a book job, he saw a bunch of idiots do the transfer. And by the end of it, everyone was on fire. Dean Fogg was right. It's a bad idea. Wait, Dean Fogg? Oh, fuck. I love the way they did that. Perfect jump to a different scene. So here we go. Penny worrying about everyone else again. We've been saying this over and over again. We even said it to Arjun and he disagreed with us. But we'll see later on. Hyman even says it to him. You say you don't care, but you, you care the most in this story. Yep. I was a little frustrated. I thought, are they bringing Penny in for a couple of random blips to bring humor to the situation? But they brought back his very serious struggle mm. a few scenes later. First, they go to see Dean Fogg. And he's kind of upset. He can't believe Julia has had magic this whole time and she's just telling him now. Well, in the beginning of this season, I was worried to tell Fogg because of the scene we saw with him and one of the board members. And I was like, oh, no, is Dean Fogg going to be turned against us? At this point, obviously, we don't feel that way. No, they just feel he's drunk and unreliable. (laughs) Well, he's lost everything, right? Last season, he lost his eyesight. He lost his identity. You know, he was Dean Fogg. He was good at magic. And he had to try to relearn. And now he's lost his school. He's lost magic. As he tells us, he's just a regular guy. Blind and unemployed to boot. But you want to rid yourself of the one thing we all so desperately want. If you understood where... You understand. I'm a magician with no magic. A dean without a school. Just a blind, unemployed black man in America. Who shockingly was actually being kept 38% more tolerant through a series of enchantments which have now died. In case you hadn't noticed, or perhaps maybe you weren't in a position to need to. You're really drunk. So what? What does it matter? But I actually thought he had been more reliable the past couple episodes being there to talk to our group, advise them a little bit of the mentor figure that we've been looking for. A little bit more. Despite the fact that he's going through his own struggles. I think you're going to be surprised by me saying this, but this was actually one of my favorite scenes. In this whole episode. Well, he's a fantastic actor. Yeah, a couple things. One, I wish I had his voice. I think this podcast would be even more popular if I had his voice. But two, we always wanted more from Fog. We would always say, we need more. Where's Fog? We want to see this character blossom. You know, especially in season one, he was very important. But he wasn't really relatable until this scene for me. 
this is one of the most relatable Dean Foggs that we've had. I really embraced it. I love the scene. For what? That was perfect. I love the way he did that. Well, he feels both a little more like a mentor as well as more human, as you said. We're also reminded that he was an incredibly powerful magician. You know, he tells us this voltaic transfer spell is delicate. But it wasn't Marina's spell. It's mine. She stole it from my private collection. The scene didn't just act as a bridge for Julia and Alice to get to the next section. For me, it also acted as finally getting some background. And where is Dean Fogg through all this? Where, where's his head? What's he going through? And we see he's boxing up, right? He's putting his belongings in a box. He throws it in, actually. Seeing him so under pressure and breaking and pretty much given up only helped with Julia's next scene with enchanting his glasses. Yeah, well, and he's also going through this same struggle that many of our other characters are. Who am I without magic? I don't know how to be without that. Magic or sight. I mean, or my school. I'm no longer Dean Fogg. Those things as well, but they're not able to help them with that. As you said, Julia knows she can actually help him with one of these things, at which point she puts the spell on his glasses that allows him to see. For some reason, I think just... Being pressed up against what Dean Fogg was just saying, that scene meant so much more to me when he puts on those glasses. It had so much more meaning as he put it on his face. But I also had the question of, if you were able to do that, Dean Fogg's been walking around blind even when magic wasn't I around. I know. Why didn't she do that before? So that just leads me to believe that her new powers are so much more stronger than what she had before. I mean, she's like a demigod. And so maybe she, you know, we haven't even seen the most of it, the best of it. Obviously, throughout this season, she's been getting stronger and stronger as Persephone's saying, you got to push harder, right? So maybe that's it. Maybe beforehand, before that, no one could enchant those glasses to give him sight. Perhaps, although he didn't seem that amazed that she was able to do it. Grateful, certainly. Well, he does press upon later when Alice comes back and does it to him, does it for him again, that you realize this doesn't fix me. He knows it, yeah. this doesn't fix it all. Mm-hmm. Just makes that a little bit better, as she says. And I don't know how long it lasts. Julia said it would only last a day or two, and after she gives the magic to Alice, Alice could recharge them. Do they have to keep doing that yeah. every couple of days? Yeah. Well, and then as I was saying, he does sort of act as a mentor. He tells them what they're going to need to do in order to not die from this spell. They need their semiconductor. And he points them in the direction of where they can find the Incubus, who is apparently a hedge fund manager in New York. Of course, right? Sucks up energy from people. (laughs) And money. A particular kind of energy, which is not what they were thinking. Julia and Alice tell him they're there because they think he might be able to help them power their spell with his penis. The awkwardness on that scene was beautiful. Your business, your stuff, you know, (laughs) your penis. Your little, I mean, your big, (laughs) I'm sure it's proportional. And of course, when he figures out what they're talking about, he starts laughing hysterically because this was all a joke. He planted on Fog 25 years ago that his penis is magical, which is in fact not true. They're even wrong about the whole sex being an incubus thing. He tells us he doesn't even like sex. He thinks stress is a much better way to drain people's energy, which totally explains why he does what he does. And it's true. Stress does drain your energy. Absolutely. More than anything else. Yeah. 
so strong, there's a smell to it. Yeah, and this awkward scene, which I loved, sniffing the air as he pronounces that they have a lot of it. Like he's getting high off of it, almost like a pheromone. And if they give him some more, he will then give them something to power their spell. Oh, so gross. And he rips out his tail, pronouncing that he grows a new one every spring. How gross looking. And how do you give him some more? Does he mean just like sit there and let him sniff you? I guess so. That's what he wants. He wants some hits off the stress scent. Mm. So we know that there's creatures now throughout New York, throughout the world that look like humans working a human job. Maybe Trump's a creature. And his hair. His hair certainly is. That's his gills. Yeah. <laughs> That's how he breathes. You know, see how it flaps in the wind? It's him breathing. Oh. <laughs> Does he have a tail? That was just fake news. Well, there's creatures out there that feed off of things that we don't necessarily want or that are bad for us. They're not all the way you would imagine. Incredibly scary and coming after you, trying to kill you the way it felt like with the lamprey. Most of them even just pretty much look like regular humans. But that's all we get with the Incubus. Julia and Alice go back to break bills where they continue the spell with Penny yelling at them that one of their wires is coming loose and they're going to kill themselves. It's like a stressed mom. This is the part where Hyman tells Penny he knows that he acts like he doesn't care. See, this is what I love about you, Penny. You act like you don't care, but really you care most in this whole story. And I was like, preach on. We've been saying that forever. But and he's the one that implants the thought of, just leave, man. Yeah, then, then why is everyone acting like I'm not a part of it anymore? Maybe it's time to blouse this popsicle stand. You mean leave? Why not? This is too stressful for you. You can't fix anything. You're just here watching a scary movie that you can't fix. Well, because it makes Penny angry. And first he says, why is everyone acting like I'm not a part of it anymore? And that's when he advises him to find a story that doesn't make him feel this way. That's why I don't watch scary movies with you. Because I don't want a story that makes me feel that way. I see both of their point of views, and I see why Penny wants to leave. Because he, I mean, no one seems to care. He, from day one. He feels like he's slowly disappearing. And I was thinking to myself, is this how you form a vengeful spirit? Exactly what Alice was talking about. He's becoming a ghost in his own life who can only speak through a talking fish for crying out loud. <laughs> I mean, a little later, the fish alarm starts singing again, and Julia realizes Penny is there. He tells her he came to say goodbye. He's taking Hyman's advice. But it felt a little the way he started this goodbye to her. He wanted her or somebody to stop him. Oh, by the way, I just came to say goodbye. I'm, I'm leaving, in case you didn't know. <laughs> it doesn't feel like he has any connection to Julia or really or he really wants her to talk to him. It's more like a cry for help. Well, it's the last chance. Listen, guys, you're not paying attention. I used a fish one more time. <laughs> I'm leaving. Make me want to stay. And I know where Penny's coming from. It makes complete sense. And this is when Julia, who's holding the key, she grabs her stomach, and, and she admits again she hates holding the key. At that point, I thought, she's still got magic in her. There's still something inside her. She didn't release all the power. There's no way. Yeah, and, and I... And Persephone wouldn't allow that to happen. We said that. I said what went wrong. Because we did see that the transfer worked. To test it, Alice performed this spell that used to be one of her favorites where she creates the glass animals, hear a little horse. Notably, that was something she did with such grace 
in season one. It was like she was creating a piece of artwork where here it didn't feel no. delicate. It felt like she looked incredibly focused and she was addicted to the energy she was creating. Also, didn't it move? He used to dance around yeah. the table. And I don't remember it looking almost like molten lava as it's transforming. And then it transforms and she grabs it and it's hard. She's you very know, rough a, with it. It doesn't move at all. It's a, it's a, like a hard crystal whatever. Mm-hmm. So we know that it worked. She went to Dean Fogg to recharge his glasses. And she told him she knows the magic's still small, but she's going to grow it. Still small because she only got a portion of it. Yeah, I think demigod magic is not something you can just transfer over to anybody, you know? So she probably just transferred a little bit of magic, but not like taking from her magic. It was kind of just giving some magic, you know? And we're going to see that it's going to be Julia's. This is her cross to bear. Just like Elliot and Margot's was to be High King, which they did not want to be. And just like Persephone said, you know, great leaders aren't given this their power because they want it. So again, we're seeing this being portrayed. She's going to have to face this. This is her quest. And what is Alice's future going to look like if that is in fact what happened, that she just has a little bit of magic? How much is that going to frustrate her? Well, if she lives. Where where it's like a tease that she has just enough to be able to perform it, but it's going to be nothing like being a Niffin 100% pure magic. Well, that's her cross to bear. Yeah. I think she's going to get very angry with that. She will still not be how she identified in last episode, one of the most powerful magicians. But back to Penny saying goodbye to Julia. She tries to get him to explain. She doesn't want him to just give up and walk out. And of course, Penny mirrors what we're thinking. You're the one who had magic and gave it away. You have nothing beyond that. And you don't care. Stop pretending like you care. Yeah. You know? And it's true, out of all the characters, I don't really think Julia and Penny ever had a bond there. Well, I mean, she wasn't part of Breakbills. So I don't think he had time to have one-on-ones with her or anything or really cultivate that kind of relationship. Yeah, she's not going to be the one to persuade him not to leave. And Alice doesn't do so well with that either. She joins and tells Penny he can't be a ghost person in his own life, just reinforcing what he's thinking. But she does offer to make him a new body, like Mayakovsky did for her. Now, I was a little confused because I don't remember Mayakovsky actually building her a new physical body. No, I don't either. I do remember that Quentin was trying to reunite her with her shade to bring her back into some kind of physical existence in this world and something more Alice-like and not pure Niffin. So he went to Mayakovsky for help with that magic. They performed this incredibly difficult spell when she was inside of the cage. And I know that they had to put her back into a physical existence. Perhaps Mayakovsky had to, during the middle of all that, do some magic that would create a physical body for it to go into. But that's huge. I mean, look how difficult that whole thing was. It's like 3D printing every part of a body. From bones to veins to blood cells. And she was just talking about how small her magic was right now. What made her think she was going to be able to perform that? I mean, it would be amazing. Penny must be thinking, finally, somebody trying to help. It's something that could actually do something for him. But I don't think she was doing it out of the goodness of her heart. It was more like she wanted to test her magic and grow it. Hmm. 
I didn't see it that way. You might be right. I have skepticism of her motives. It feels like her journey this season is very much looking for that power and that magic back, and that's all she can focus on right now. Unfortunately, it does not go well for her. She starts having a seizure during the middle of the spell or something like that. And that's when Penny sounds the fish alarm (laughs) and hopes that someone will hear it. And you said right away. It's got to be Q that hears him, right? For all of those times that Quentin put brainworm songs into Penny's head, the fish song has got to be one that goes out to Q because it's obnoxious. Oh, I see. You're talking about season one when Q was just talking in his head. He was always in his head and Penny could hear his brain constantly. And he's like, will you just shut up? He kept putting annoying. I don't remember what song it was. Yeah. That cut into his head. So it's vice versa now. Yeah. I just didn't see that because we know Q is on the Munjack right now. And he's got, he's, he's look, he's going to try to find a way to get to the underworld. But I guess he has to be on his way back. He has to talk to his crew. You know, I was thinking, man, I hope it's not the underworld where they actually meet up. I was very nervous oh, I see. that Penny might voluntarily go back to the library, who we know had a base of operations in the underworld. But it looked like they were meeting back up on Earth from our preview next time. So I don't think so. And yeah, I don't know how Quentin gets back here. But I am very interested to see where this goes. This, they always manage to make every storyline really exciting. and You want to know more. And... Penny and Quentin back together on scene. I can't get enough of that. I got to be honest, this episode, when they started this, I guess you would say, quest with Julia and Alice, I wasn't into it because I felt like you're making Q go out alone on the Munchak to get a key all by himself. Well, with Benedict and a couple of guards, but really by himself. Meanwhile, okay, Penny obviously can't help, but we have two capable people. Katie's in the mental hospital, but Julia... And Alice could be there with him to help out. Meanwhile, they're doing their own selfish thing. That's how I felt the whole time. But now, at the end of this episode, I'm very intrigued to see what happens now. Well, and of course, the one that Q really wanted was Elliot. And they both seem very regretful that that couldn't happen. But I've kind of been saying that about Julia for a long time. And I don't mean to be getting down on her, but she is always so very focused on the personal issues that are happening to her and how she's going to deal with that or get revenge or run away from it instead of dealing with it. Even when she seeks Q out, it's kind of a quid pro quo. And she hasn't been part of these fillery adventures and the bigger problems. Even in the beginning, she wasn't there for them. She was tracking the beast on her own. Uh, This time around, she's not out to save all of magic. She's out to deal with her own shit. So later on, we do get to see Julia dealing with her own shit as she sees Reynard. And I was like, yep, knew it. She hasn't gotten rid of this. She thinks it's just a dream, but he starts telling her things from her past. Love how you keep trying to get rid of me. And then she wakes up. Okay, one, if it's a dream, he could still tell her things about her past. It's your dream. It's your conscious. But uh, obviously, it's not a dream. And he pretty much relays what we've been saying. You know, you, you can't just forget it or push work. it on someone else and then you give up um, and then you don't feel them, those feelings anymore. I'm always going to be there. I don't think it was Reynard. I think it was her subconscious because I want to think that Persephone got rid of him. Do you think she killed him? <sighs> I mean, if she didn't, she wouldn't allow him to again come into Earth and start messing with, her, well, one, her golden child, right? Basically, she really sees something in Julia. 
Yeah, if she knew about that, there's no way. But it seems like Reynard used to get up to a lot of stuff that she didn't know about. That's why he's the fox. Mm-hmm. I hope he's not still around. I'm kind of over him. I want to move forward. If he is, he doesn't have his power anymore. So what can he do to her? He's got some power if that is him and he was able to go into her conscious. I think it would be a bad idea to start messing with her with the amount of power she's been given now. She could really turn the tables on this if he's still alive and around in any form, unless it is just mentally all in her head, like what Q is going through, and then there's nothing that could hurt her worse. The depression monster gets us all. Exactly. Well, let's head over to White Spire to see what Elliot and Margot have been dealing with. The Stone Queen tells Margot she knows what Pickwick has been up to in this special corridor, and that they've been plotting against the Fairy Queen both of them in their own ways. Since what happened with her son, it soured her on the deal. And she has a weapon that was forged in the foundries of Stonehaven. When the time is right, she thinks they can use it to kill the fairy queen. Very interesting. But my first thought was, if the stone queen, who does not know this castle, right? I'm presuming she doesn't know the castle very well. She doesn't know Fillory very well. She sees what Pickwick's up to. You don't think the fairy queen knows what Pickwick's up to? And he's supposed to be this master stealth thief? Yeah. (laughs) What the heck is this weapon that she thinks she can use to kill her? I have no idea. Stonehaven has got to be where they come from, right? She's the stone queen after all. But she also has other priorities. She needs Margot to consummate the marriage first to her son, Fomar. So she locks them in a room together. I wonder why she needs that so desperately. Also, Margot's yelling for the guards, and yet again, I'm left saying, the Felorian guards are the worst guards in the world. <laughs> they have always been useless. Mm-hmm. And this is very creepy, and I'm sure this happened often in the past, and it happens often in Game of Thrones. It's really not about your daughter or about your son. It's about your family name and the power and the money. Strengthening the alliance. But it felt, to me, more like she was being forced into that by the fairy queen if she's not really in on this deal anymore and doesn't owe her anything why is she so insistent on it happening right now good question and the fairy queen is for sure still up to some crazy tricks but i do feel confident on some level because we know that elliot is back and he is more cunning more wise i mean he did live a full life and i think again elliot's gonna be our man this is his season for sure (laughs) who's going to be able to really help Margo out and defeat. Yeah, he's, he's very wise, but why does he think she's going to buy this? Uh, he just misplaced my wife and child. Because he kind of did. It's all good. That's another question. Where are they? Are they in the city partying up? What's going on? I don't know, but the fairy queen was so intent. Frey is her girl. Yeah. I mean, she planted her there to keep an eye on everything. She's not just going to be okay with her being off somewhere in the city with Fen. Yeah, very odd. And I wonder why the show went that way. I wonder if we'll get something from that. But further, what does the queen have over Elliot and Margot anymore? Are they just now scared because they still have magic and they're the only ones with magic? Yeah, I mean, they could certainly do a lot with their magic. And without magic on our side, how do we really combat that? The only thing we have is our cunning ideas and schemes. And at every turn, it seems the fairy queen is there to hear about that, learn about that, so they can't go through with it. Which led me to the next thing. Why would she buy Elliot's story that he gives her next 
when she asks for help solving the problem of how to get Margot to mate with Fomar, he explains that force won't work because humans don't mate well in captivity, and she needs to let him take them into the forest on this romantic (laughs) carriage ride where the location will act as an aphrodisiac. She can't really be buying that. No. I don't know. I... uh... I have always been confused with the Fairy Queen, and I think that's on purpose. Up until this episode, we had no idea what her intentions really were. I was starting to sway towards maybe it's a good thing, the way she reacted off of Margot on the Munjack two episodes ago. But obviously at this point, that's not the case. Does she know? Does she know? Did she know. send them out there to figure it out? What would she get out of As that? As an intimidation tactic, there's nothing you can do you've actually helped me to grow an army that's going to ensure you can't defeat me. No, I don't think she was ready to show her cards. Hmm. It's too early. Because otherwise, she knows that they're going out into the forest. Maybe she just thinks there's enough guards around, they won't be able to get away with anything. Well, that was pretty far. They went up north a while. So Mm -hmm. I definitely think she didn't presume they'd go that far up north. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and normally she would be following them, having them watched, which is exactly why she can't be okay with Frey being missing. That's her little spy. And they are able to get away with these plans that kind of feel like, how were they able to do this? How were they able to pull this off? But it's very funny as well. First, we get this scene where Fomar talks to Margot, tries to justify killing Micah by telling her in his culture, younger sons can't marry or inherit property. Most of them end up serving in the Crag Guard or dying in battle. Yeah, feel bad for me. Prince Fuckface. Yeah, and I don't even think he thinks that's going to work. Although, if you go back to all of these stories, and I'm thinking of George R. R. Martin in particular, that was a common theme of Second Sons really getting shafted. Second Sons and beyond. I always said, if I was part of a regal family and my older brother was going to be king... That's perfect, because he's going to have all the responsibilities. I'll have all the money, and I'm just the prince that gets to do whatever I want. Yeah, a lot of them didn't look at it that way, though. Their children would never get to ascend to the throne. They wouldn't get to have the family castle, the family estate, whatever it is. They would get other super rich giant mansions. (laughs) They formed a whole sellsword company in Bravos, one Hmm. of the biggest ever, the Second Sons. Well, you know, and obviously I'm being, uh, I'm joking a little bit. In his case, a prince doesn't end up getting that. They have to be a guard. They have to serve in his case. So I understand, I guess, where he's coming from. Yeah, you're saying a lot of them actually end up dying going into this army, becoming soldiers who go to battle. If they're floating, who's going to try to take over their world, right? Like when there's magic, they're a floating island. Are they going to much battle to protect their land? Yeah, it kind of feels like it would protect itself. But I guess if you had magic too, how hard would it be for you to get there? But I do think this background kind of explains why Fomar is so crazy. Not that that's justifiable in any way, but in his mind, it was almost a done deal. What else can I do if I don't just accept that fate? Yeah. And again, this is a scene, Margot's been shining lately, huh? She's been really given a lot of good scenes where she can give us her Margoness, And this is when she tries to dissuade him from sex by giving him an abbreviated sex ed course. <laughs> it's, Showing it's, those funny pictures, those, you know, as a kid, you're like, oh, God. It's scary and it's gross. Uh, we have periods where we bleed every month. I like blood. <clears throat> but do you like teeth? 
And this is where I was like, no matter how much you try to tell me this kid's backstory and why he is the way he is, he's just creepy and weird. But I like the way that Margot has kind of taken the power back by treating him that way, like a creepy, weird child. You're not going to get what you want. We are not having sex. I'm actually going to sit you down and give you a sex ed class because that's what you do with creepy 13-year-olds. <laughs> Instead of feeling afraid for vulnerable Margot that was being placed in this position that you had to feel very worried for what was going to happen to her. And she's not in on this alone anymore. Elliot has plans to try to help her. I was so nervous about that. Are they just leaving her with this yeah. problem to deal with? And no, I'm glad they're back. But at this point, she doesn't know or she doesn't feel like Elliot's there for her. She's been in there for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And we even maybe wonder by the conversation he has with the fairy queen. She just needs a friend to coerce her. To talk her into it. You can't force her into it. I mean, I knew he wasn't going to do that, but I was feeling a little bit nervous until we have this next scene. Very funny. A Q comes in. He's been dressed, disguised as a palace guard to hide from the fairy queen. Oh, I didn't catch that. I thought <laughs> like he had to be guard now. He was hiding. Okay. Elliot says the reason that they did that was so that she wouldn't figure out who he was, that he oh, was yeah, the king she never of Hillary. She never met him. <laughs> How does she not know she knows everything? <laughs> Come on. But he's able to tell Elliot that he thinks he found the fourth key, and he's all excited that they're going to get to go on a boat quest together. And Elliot has to tell him he can't go. He can't leave because he has to help Margot. He almost seems wistful. Yeah. Like he would really like to go on this adventure with Q. They go on an, that would be nice for them to go on the next quest together. And it looks like Q really enjoys boats. I didn't know that about him. <laughs> but, you know, he's got to be responsible. This is what Elliot does now. He helps to save Fillory. So he's going to have to share a lifetime with somebody else, perhaps Benedict. And this is when we get that scene that helps to answer our questions. Are they going to be closer from this point on? Having the memory of being together, living a whole life together, and we see the hug and the kiss. And we see how close they are. And one of our Clatchers wrote to us on Twitter, at Marax Rose, she wrote, how fucking cute are Q and E? And I absolutely, yeah. I'm excited for this relationship. I hope it continues to cultivate and be that strong. I think Q needs that, especially since the women in his life seem to be, you know, uh, not all about him. Grew up <laughs> with Julia not all. giving a shit. And then <laughs> Alice not giving a shit. Yeah, that's kind of what I was saying. We didn't get to see a lot of that yet from the books, this really special, funny dynamic that goes on between the two of them. But I also wondered, would that change the relationship Elliot has with Margot? You know, three's a crowd. But it never really was with them. Not so far, but you do see Margot being a little possessive of him. This is her Elliot. And she don't, doesn't want anyone moving in on that. If it's kind of the three of them a little bit sometimes that's okay but I don't think she wants Elliot to have this relationship with Q that she doesn't she kind of starts to allude to that a little bit later I mean, we saw her last episode a bit resentful when talking to Jane Chatwin that Elliot and Q get to go on these adventures together while she's stuck dealing with this stuff at White Spire middle management exactly and then she wonders to Elliot later on who even are we anymore and she's talking about the two of them, but also I think a little bit their relationship together, how they used to be versus how they are now. And I think she sees Elliot changing a bit and that makes her nervous. 
but they're all changing. But you can kind of see that it feels a little bit like it's not as natural between the two of them as it used to be. She wants to just go back to who they were and their old dynamic. When can we get back to that, you know? And he says, when we save Fildery. But first, a Lorian guard brings Elliot an urgent message from Princess, who's free now. Margot had to let him out of the dungeon because he was innocent of all charges. And Elliot's going to tell Margot about what he said during their carriage ride together. But it sounds like S is trying to help them by giving yeah. them this information. Do Absolutely. you think the, the Lorians are going to step up a little bit? I hope so, because this is for all of Fillory and all the surrounding lands. If these fairy queens invade and make it their world, they're all in trouble. Yeah, which they're halfway to that, right? And, and they've gotten our kings and queens to perform the tasks that will get that done. How scary. And we see this when we go on this carriage ride into the forest. Elliot takes Margot and Fomar. Takes Margot a minute, but then she catches on to Elliot's drift where he's trying to tell her to drink the wine or code, you don't drink it, but let Fomar drink it because it's drugged. No, they all drank it. That was the only one that was drugged. And this is where I disagree with you. You were saying Elliot and Margot's relationship felt different. Margot was mad at Elliot, and that's how they fight. And they even said, you know, I wish we just had our fight because then we could go back to being ourselves after. But once Margot sees that Elliot was helping and this was part of his plan, I think they fold right back into this relationship that they have. They go back to their dynamic a little bit when they're trying to figure out what's going on with the mushrooms in the forest. But before that, it kind of felt a little bit like she was questioning him, who are we turning into? But really, she was asking about him more than herself because... I didn't read that. He's Mr. Responsibility now, Mr. Save Fillory. But so is she. That's all she's been up to. Yes. But I don't know that she's fully embraced it as part of her identity or just this job that she's been stuck with that she doesn't have a lot of choice about. I mean, she's taken on her personal power and the ability to do things. But if she could choose, do you think this is still what she would pick? Because I wonder about that sometimes. I mean, this is really hard for somebody like Margot, although I guess I would have said for a long time that it would be hard for somebody like Elliot, too, that they didn't want to step into these responsibilities. She says before, we used, we used to, be to be glamorous, amazing mega bitches. And now... But yeah, you're 100% right. Elliot had a plan, of course. He is there to help Margot, of course, because he cares about her. He drugged Fomar, and after Fomar passed out, he starts giving her the information. The fairies are up to something in the northern orchard. They've evacuated the villagers weeks ago and haven't let another human in since. He found this out from S's letter, where he said he came through on his way from Loria and saw rivers red. Three-eyed, fanged toads, mutant plant life. And he thinks the fairies might be poisoning the ecosystem. And they do see, once they arrive and get out of the carriage at the northern orchard, it's completely covered in the field of mushrooms that she was talking about planting. Yep. But they're not poisoning the ecosystem. They're terraforming it. They're changing it. Elliot realizes this far north, the climate should be cold and dry, not warm and moist like it is. And Margot kind of picks up on that train of thought. Yeah, they're very into moisture. We see her taking a bath all the time. And this is the aha moment. And as they're going through this realization that they're turning their kingdom into a mushroom steam bath, <laughs> they see a mushroom move and Margot plucks it. 
pulls it up, roots and all, oh. and there's an egg, a fairy embryo. Very cool. Did this remind at. you a little bit of Prometheus? A little bit, yeah. When the things for open sure. up and there's the embryo inside. And we all start to realize they're growing a huge army. Did you see when they pan back, there's so many of those mushrooms? Yeah, they're not just changing the climate to make it more hospitable for them to live in, but to grow an army yeah. that will actually take over Fillory. And this fairy queen has been keeping them all distracted while they plan a full-scale invasion. And they need a plan, even bigger than assassinating the queen. Yeah, well, at this point, you take her out, you still have the whole army to contend with. I said, though, <laughs> they're all still eggs. If there's a way to get rid of them, there is no army right now. We need a lawnmower. Oh, I thought, isn't there some way that you can get rid of them? But then you reminded me they have guards everywhere. Yeah, they do. But this was a great part where... <laughs> Elliot's going through what to do. He looks around. Margot's missing. And there you see her with a whole bunch of embryos in her hands. Like, we got to go. Let's go. We got hostages. We're running hostages. But I was thinking, I don't know if that's going to work. They, she has maybe four or five He's out of a million. Them. Do you think the fairy queen will really care no. about four or five? No, right? No, no, no. I don't think so at all. But <laughs> to be in her head probably makes sense. What else are they going to do? Such a funny scene. And so is this next one. We're back in the carriage. They're trying to figure out how to deal with Fomar. And if somebody caught them right now, she's got all of these stolen hostage eggs. They have a passed out prince who they've drugged with wine and are now biting his manhood with a fanged toad. It's also something to acknowledge that in season two, Elliot was trying desperately to make good wine. They didn't have wine, remember? Mm. And every time he was like, how do I make wine? This doesn't taste good. Yeah. Looks like he's done it. But I digress. Well, Fomar buys it that these tooth marks are because he's had sex with Margot. They did it. Margot has her top undone as if they just had sex. And of course, Elliot, like, what? I like to watch. I watched. It's cool. And it looks like she fetched that frog or that toad to bite some of the... Uh... Yeah, the fanged toad. Yeah. Which is great because I'm sure it's not feeling good. It's in pain. And it might deter him from wanting to do it again. This kid is such a weird creep. I don't think it's going to stop him. No? I really don't. <laughs> very well played. And it was such a Margot and Elliot kind of scene. That's something that they would do together. Yeah, I'm, I'm worried about the future of this. I'm, I'm ready to be done with Fomar. <laughs> Prince fuckface. <laughs> Our last couple of scenes to discuss are on the Munchak where Q is initially sort of on this quest alone, at least just with Benedict for now. Cutting loose, acting silly, having a good time. <laughs> He's happy to be on a boat. Until, of course, Benedict says they've entered the abyss and it will be darkness from here on out. They're looking for safe passage before they can move forward. And that's when Q hears someone in the ocean and they pull Poppy aboard. In enters Poppy. She's been stuck in that abyss for a long time. She explains how she was on the disastrous spring break class of 2016. Which we all know about. Our boy Josh was part of that. She's Again, really, where's Josh? Really excited about that, that Q knows him. And she also can't believe Breakbill's students are kings and queens now. She tells him about the fact that dragons were her area <coughs> of study and field work, and that she spent two years on that ship before it wrecked off the coast of the Truthwaters. Since then, she survived for three weeks on a raft by herself without magic. And she wonders if Q knows why magic went out in the first place. He explains that he's on a quest for golden keys to restore magic. 
right away, I'm like, Q, why are you divulging so much? And he does it again later on. Way too much. It's like, you don't know this woman. And of course, we were saying that right away, she was breaking down his guard, playing the game, being so friendly. Let's drink. Let's loosen up. Oh, here's the key. I'll derobe. You know, all these things, like just very clever woman. You were very skeptical of her from the moment she just offered him that key so easily. That sounds like it was really hard to get. She said she stole it from this dragon breeding ground on this island where there's only even two species of dragons that build treasure nests. And the key was in one of them. She says she could feel something coming off of it, that it wasn't just dead. There was something in that key. And when the dragons were distracted, she took it. And that's when we get to hear her say, I'm a person of questionable ethics. <laughs> Q explains to her that each key has a unique thing. So he wonders what this one does. And of course, we know she knows. But this key, out of all the keys, isn't very helpful. I mean, it's more of a negative key, right? Each one is supposed to present its own challenge. So we had the illusion key where you have to break through the facade of what it's trying to show you. We know how that could be difficult for each specific person, such as when Elliot encounters his father. Then you have the truth key, which is just dealing with the truth, period. And that is very hard for some of our characters. Julia still can't really hold it. The key to greater magic, and I wonder if the challenge there is power and control. Put that in the hands of somebody like Alice, and that could be dangerous. Even Jane using it to make these time loops, that could have gone very, very wrong. So I think like with each of them, it sort of depends on who is the one holding it and dealing with the key. Absolutely. You're right about that. It's not just this particular key where it depends on who's holding it. But I was really questioning the fact that dragons would let something like this go so easily. They were distracted. They were mating. Didn't really make sense to me because there's no fairy tale where it's so easy to steal from a dragon's lair. We seem to find out later on why. It's more of a trap, Mm -hmm. and the dragons follow you. And it might not have been as easy as Poppy's making it out to be. That's true. But how did she know? Why did she take the key out of everything that's probably there? There's so much gold, probably. There's there's probably a cloak, an invisibility cloak. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean, though? The golden fleece, like in the Percy Jackson. Yeah. So why the key? Well, she did say she felt something coming off of it, so maybe it was the Mm. energy. And of course, Q is getting very drunk, passes out, and Poppy proceeds to put the key in his hand. At that point, I knew something was up. She needed him to hold it. We didn't know why yet, until Q wakes up to see another Q sitting in the chair next to him, being very mean to him. This is when I start to say how amazing Jason Ralph has been on his acting chops. Last episode, we loved the way he betrayed growing old and going through life's trials and tribulations, losing loved ones. And this one, it's dealing with himself. That's probably the hardest thing that any of us would have to deal with. The synopsis even told us Quentin faces his most formidable foe yet, himself. And these scenes are the best acted scenes for Jason Ralph. I really liked him in the last episode, but this blew me away. And I think it's the first time I felt that strongly about Quentin. As I said before, the fact that when he's acting these roles, it seems like a different person sitting next to him. Everything from his facial features, his tone of voice, how he says the things he says. And this alter ego, this depression monster, starts asking him questions that I'm sure we have heard our alter egos in our own heads ask ourselves. Why do you always have to embarrass yourself? Mm. Or you're not worth anything. I mean, there's countless things that we say to ourselves constantly that 
does take us down a notch all the time. And, and if we let it happen, which it's, I've let it happen many times, it could engulf you. It could take over everything. Self-talk is what we call that. Self-talk? Mm-hmm. And this is funny because uh, Arjun Gupta has his podcast this season has been about health and wellness, and he does discuss something similar to this in regards to the way you perceive life is the way you'll perceive life. Mm-hmm. Meaning you could have the same job, you go into the same job, you're enjoying it, you're getting a lot out of it, you have the same girlfriend, the same house, and then something could overtake you, this depression monster. If you let all the little things, those doubts that pop in your head every so often, a couple times a day, if you let those overwhelm you, then all of a sudden you're going to work and you're like, God, I fucking hate this place. Ugh. And then you come home and you're like, the grass is overgrown and the pipes are squeaky or, you know, something little that you could normally just deal with. You're like, I hate this house. Why do I live here? I'm trapped here. I have a mortgage. You know, like all these things could overcome you and make you want to jump off. Well, reality is not reality, right? It's not a fixed series of events. This is why you talk to two people who go through the exact same experience and they could relate it entirely different to you. Those events are only true as we perceive them to be when we're Mm -hmm. going through that experience. And that's because when we go through it, we build a narrative in our heads about what happened, how we felt about it, and how we perceive it changes the way we think it happened. And it can go with anything, go with this podcast. We could be like, yes, all right, we have another episode of The Magicians and we're going to record it. It's going to be great. Or we can be like, oh my God, it's Wednesday already? Oh, we got to sit down. We got to take notes, stop and rewind and pause. And then we got to record it. And I just want to relax. You know, you could, it's the same thing happening. And you build, your... you build that up in your mind. Think yeah. about the way then you feel the entire time throughout. It's dictated by how you went into that. Mm-hmm. This is going to be great. I'm really excited. Or this is terrible. And it influences events after. We talk about this a lot. Why do two people go through the same event, sometimes a traumatic event, and one person comes out of it and eventually they're okay, whereas the other person develops PTSD? They have boiled it down to one thing. Now, there are things going in that make you more vulnerable to experiencing this trauma in a way that affects you like that. And there are post-trauma characteristics. But it really comes down to the one thing of your perceived sense of helplessness during the event. That's what dictates whether you develop it or not. Mm. I think you have a big perceived sense of helplessness often coming off of Quentin. He's trapped in this stuff. He can't get to this place no matter what he does that will make him happy. And that's another thing that dictates it is how much control we feel we have over it. When you talk about happiness, is it solely contingent on these external events that will make you happy? When I get to this place outside of me, this great place that's wonderful and magical, that will make me feel happy. When people treat me this way, it will make me feel happy. Nobody can make you feel anything. No place can make you feel anything. You dictate your own feelings. And a lot of that starts with your thoughts. And this is how we kind of unravel depression. Poppy even says it to us, right? It can't actually hurt you unless it gets in your head and convinces you to hurt yourself. Yeah. You are doing it to yourself. But man, the things he says to Quentin, I start on the outside and I work my way into your core. The part of you that kept magic from Julia when you could have helped her. You got your best friend sexually assaulted. 
And let's talk about Alice. You ruined her. She's never going to be the girl she was. You killed her, and she's never coming back. How many people have to pay the price for your heroics? You're willing to destroy everyone around you to find something that makes you feel okay, but you're never going to feel okay. I'm in your head. You know I'm right because I am you. Wow. These are probably doubts that he's had in his head. Every so often, these seeds of thought that he's able to overcome, but, you know, you got the depression monster just piling it all on, digging in. It's a difficult situation. And look how effective it is. Poppy tells us this is what happened with her and her shipmates. The key does have a power. No shit. It takes the darkest parts of you and makes a kind of, well, you meant it. It's kind of like a depression monster. Looks like you, talks like you. But don't worry, it can't actually hurt you. Unless. Unless. Unless it gets in your head and convinces you to hurt yourself. What? But you'll be fine. It only affects the last person who touched the key, so just pass it along to someone else. That's what we did. The rest of them couldn't handle it because they were weak, quote-unquote. About half of them survived. And she chalks that up to the fact that they were pretty psychologically damaged beforehand. Mm -hmm. But that's just the thing. It affects everyone differently. One, it takes a while to creep in and then overcome you. One, it's right away. You could see, I mean, I'm sure we have friends or acquaintances or people that we know in life where you can see them and they're like, hey, what's up? How you doing? And then one little thing could happen and like, oh, my Sets God, them off. this <laughs> always happens. Why is this? You know, and it, yeah. Yeah, I think it depends how big and repressed is that seed inside of your brain. How ready is it to just grow at the least little nurturing? Mm -hmm. And this alter cue is definitely nurturing in a very bad way. Absolutely. And this is a challenge that we have to go through often in life. I think, I mean, years ago, this is probably more of a Patreon type thing, but let's just talk about it a little bit. For years with me, I often was doubting about things in life or I would let this one thing that was on my mind weigh everything down. And I, and I think over the last couple of years, I've gotten really good at getting out of that funk and being more positive not ignoring those things, but just not letting it drag me down. Well, you can't let that thing run amok in your head. It will run that deranged loop over and over again until it breaks you if you allow it. you got to stop that in its tracks and sort of change the script of that self-talk. Um, but sometimes it is like it has a mind of its own, like it's a creature that's outside of you that's making your brain think these things. And, and this seems to be... A manifestation of that. I mean, Poppy says, you're happy and positive, so it won't affect you that way. I, I think a little bit that's how she felt. The other people were psychologically weak, susceptible to this. I wasn't as weak. And you know, you'll be okay, because she doesn't know what Quentin's of like. Course. You're a happy person. When I met you, you were so happy. Yeah, but because we're on a boat. This isn't the real me. <laughs> we're on a boat. It's fun. It's magical. Well, and Q, too, once he realizes those heroics of his are taking over. He really is a good person on the inside. I can't pass it on to somebody else. I can't take that risk of what it could do. How could you do that to somebody where she's just saying, well, get rid of it. Yeah. Get rid of it and you'll be fine. He's looking for ways to keep it at bay, anything that he can try. But the thing keeps combating it. You can't get rid of me by eating, oh, running away, jerking off. <laughs> those were great. Very well edited. And he also says nothing is going to save you, not break bills, not fillery, not a quest. This really pushes Quentin till he goes out, leans over the side of the boat, 
is seeming to consider it until he sees those glowing yellow eyes mm-hmm. under the water. He realizes it's the dragon, but he must look pretty close to the edge. Benedict comes up to stop him, saying he knows what Quentin is thinking. He's thought it before, too. And we get this unexpected outpouring from Benedict about his past. He says, your parents teach you to bottle up your emotions and never talk about them. Turn them into maps, for example. Yep, and that's a true statement, right? We've heard that many times, and we've gone through that. Oftentimes, I'll bury my emotions with working, going out to exercise, going for a run, which is healthy, but you still have to eventually at least face what's bothering you and figure out how to overcome it. He also, almost jokingly, puts forward this little piece of advice that in the old days when sailors would go mad, the crew would tie them to the mast. But Quentin takes that seriously. Yeah. He says he can't trust himself. Tie him to the mast. And by the way, we should talk about all that other stuff later that you just told me, Benedict. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) That might be important. (laughs) But for now, don't untie me until we get to White Spire, no matter what I say. And Benedict takes that very seriously. Poppy comes out, talks to him, tries to rationalize that she thought Q could handle the key. She even offers to take it a while to give him some relief. But he doesn't trust her now, surprise, surprise, and says he needs it for the quest. These keys don't just make you suffer, they teach you something. But let's think about that. Poppy offers to take it for a while. I did not see that coming, did you? It's funny because, like I say, that's sort of how the book Poppy would have been. We just need to deal with this problem. So how do we deal with what's in front of us right now? It's killing you. Give it to me for a little while. We'll pass it back and forth so it doesn't take either one of us down. And then we'll figure out where we go from there. TV Poppy? I was very surprised. I thought it was another play. Mm. It's very Lord of the Rings-like. That's what they did with Frodo. But I didn't see it coming that she was going to steal it. Well, no one did until, of course, Q... Had to spill everything. After saying he doesn't trust her, he just goes ahead and says... Oh, it's like word vomit. (laughs) (laughs) The keys can take you places. It's great. They're not just all bad. She's like, wait a second. This can allow me to leave Fillory? Oh, man. This was something that always frustrated me about Poppy. She was always looking for, how do I get back to Earth? This Fillory business is nonsense. She didn't even believe it for the longest time when they were on Earth and they were trying to tell her about it. That can't be real. That's a, what are you, what are you children talking about this place in a book, (laughs) this fantasy world? And when she initially got there, I got to get back to my studies, my research, my dragons. So there's dragons on earth? Yeah, well, there's magic. There's creatures. There's all these things. True, you're right. On earth, but she didn't think there was this holy, magical, fantastical world out there somewhere. And now we find out in TV version, the entire time she's been here, she's just been through shit. (laughs) This is not... A great place. No. Stuck on a raft for two weeks. Well, let's be honest. I mean, since we've been at Fillory, it's not been that great for our crew. That's kind of what I was saying last time. While it has some beautiful aspects, it's not everything that Quentin thought it was going to be. Yeah. It's not just all fun and games. But I guess I just didn't realize that that was her focus here. How do I get out of this? How do I get back? So at this, Poppy steals the key and she goes for it. She's going to make a door. And Q yells for Benedict for help. But of course, he's not going to untie him. Q just told him, no matter what I say, don't untie me. God bless him. He tries, though. Yeah. When Quentin tells him you have to stop her, don't let her leave with that key, he goes down there and she punches him in the face. But it looks like he punched her. Now, let's stop for a second and let's talk about this. She opened the door. 
and when she opened it, we saw for a brief second where she was going. It looked like a dungeon or some sort. It didn't look like Earth. Where do you think this was? Or if it was no good place, I think that's pretty much all she thought to herself. Wherever this is, it's not good. Because she was closing the door, right? I I think she was backing out of that. Did not look like a good idea. I'm wondering if that was taking her back to the dragon lair. I mean, it kind of looked like a cave, didn't it? Yeah, I'm not sure. So that's something, do you think that'll come up later? I'm not sure. And I'm not sure if she did decide still to try to go through anyway. And that's when Benedict punched her. We didn't actually see the Benedict hitting her thing. But we know by how she looked that it happened. Well, we know it hurt because she hasn't been punched that hard since Burning Man. (laughs) And he got the key. Yeah. Way to be, Benedict. Way to get it. But we see that Benedict is one of those. And we should have known with the way he was talking. I'd probably be one of those too. It would affect me really fast. He walks up to Q as if he failed. I failed. And it's no, it's his depression demon I destroying him right away. Telling him you fail at everything in life, probably. And that's when we see Benedict jump overboard and into the dragon's mouth. This casual death mm. for a character that is kind of longstanding. We've sort of known him. Not very well. Season two. Until this episode, but he's been around a while to just have him... We met him with Penny. Chomped up by a dragon in five seconds. It it felt like we were just developing this very interesting relationship between him and Q. I mean, Elliot really never paid him much mind. It doesn't seem like anybody really ever paid Benedict much mind, including his own parents. I mean, he thought to himself that Penny was his best friend, (laughs) which Penny would strongly disagree with, but it seemed like... He had a lot of respect for Quentin and almost looked up to him. If you noticed, in the beginning, he was calling him Sire, Your Majesty, really deferring to him as a person in authority. And then I think by the end of this scene, he could really relate to Quentin on top of that. I know what he's been through. I've been through these struggles. Maybe finally I can talk to somebody about it and they'll understand. But they never get to have that conversation. I feel really bad for him. Like, we just sort of got cut short here. So when the dragon comes up and swallows and says, what is it, like, mmm, yummy or something, the voice felt very similar to Poppy's. It sounded like her a little bit. But we know it's not Poppy. Um, But it's very peculiar. What I really want to talk about with that is what we learn later on from Poppy, that Benedict is dead and the dragon ate the key. As she explains that dragons don't shit But what they ingest goes elsewhere. Mm. They're gatekeepers. They don't just make portholes. They are portholes. Worst case scenario, the key went to the underworld. So what I want to ask you is, if this key was in the dragon's lair, I would think, just going with lore of these kind of fantasy things with dragons, that the key would act as a way, as a fishing lure, right? To draw people in? Yes, where they can let the key do its magic and then eat them when they jump overboard or kill themselves, right? But then you would think the key would go back to the lair with them so that they could do it again. So why would this time the key go to the underworld? Now the key's gone forever. Obviously, the dragon's been tracking them since it was taken. Yeah, it's not really like they're eating or digesting something. It's almost like when you enter their mouth, yeah, you're going through a portal. You're, you're entering and being transported somewhere else. So you could be right that the key pulls them in, but then perhaps normally the dragon eats them before it can even get the key. Otherwise, he must know he's losing it, or she. She. The dragon's it's a woman. she. Well, remember, it was a woman's voice. Yeah, she must know that it's going to go somewhere else if she does that. 
Hmm. Curious. But we know, I mean, they wouldn't have brought up the underworld if it wasn't true, right? Because that'd just be weird. So they're going to have to go back to the underworld. So I guess that's an answer we'll never have with the dragons. But is it always a portal to the underworld? No. Or can they go somewhere else? She said worst case scenario, the key went to the underworld. Yeah. I'm thinking worst case scenario, the key went back to the dragon's lair. Otherwise, they could really go anywhere. We hear them talking about creating portals in the books. And if you have strong enough magic and the ability, they, they can kind of take you almost anywhere. We see that a little bit, the doors in the show. Very curious, and I, I, I'm, I'm intrigued to see what happens from that point on. I'm also I'm wondering how Q will introduce Poppy to everyone else. This is Poppy. She's a bitch. This Don't bitch. trust her. <laughs> I'd be like, if I was Q, I would be like, you know what? Let's introduce her to... Fomar? Let's introduce her to Prince Fomar. <laughs> yes. Oh, man, I don't know that I wish him on anybody, but that's a good call. But I do foresee her redeeming herself. I, it, this seems like an important enough character. And, and with them casting Felicia Day, this can't be a one and done or two and done. I think she's going to become more important and hopefully more likable. I think she's probably going to be a little bit more like that book character. And you're going to find out this was all just an effort for her own survival. She wasn't doing it to be malicious. And maybe she even really did believe that Q would be okay. Yeah. He seems like he can deal with this. I dealt with it. And then we'll both come out of this all right. Well, speaking of that, Poppy was going to be our character review for today, but we've kind of already gone over all the information that we have for her, except for things that are major... Spoilers. Spoilers that I really don't want to talk about here. Yeah, don't. We'll have them yet to come. Yeah, don't spoil that shit. (laughs) So let's talk about the questions that we have. Did something go wrong with Julia in the transfer? Why is she seeing Reynard now? Did she really just give away her magic? Which we believe, no, she didn't. Mm -hmm. Why didn't she tell Dean Fogg about it? Or a lot of other people, for that matter. And why didn't she do this spell for him before, as far as the glasses? So these are the questions that we had. How can Alice make Penny a new body? Yeah, is her magic really still very small and unable to grow bigger and she just tackled something way beyond her? And what's going to happen to her as a result of this seizure or whatever she just had? So you think the seizure is a result of her trying to do some crazy magic or it was just a matter of time that this would happen to her? No, because it was midway through performing this spell. And we know how dangerous some of these even fairly normal spells can be, but especially the ones that are too big for you. We just heard the dire consequences of performing that transfer if you don't do it right for many people. But Julia had some big magic, and I don't think Alice does anymore. And so where does that leave Penny, as always? Where will he go now? What story is he a part of, if not this one? No, he's not going anywhere. You don't think so? No, because he's back in it. Alice was making a body for him. He's got Q coming. Katie. But that wasn't enough to keep him before. I can't believe we didn't see her. I know we could not have fit one more bit of plot Mm -hmm. into this episode, but really leaving us hanging on the psych hospital plot line. And more importantly, what is the weapon the Stone Queen has? Does it matter now? Is there any way to get rid of all those eggs? Is there any way to beat them? Period. 
Will the Lorians come back into play? Will they be more important? Could this be a potential alliance for us? So many questions. Speaking of questions, before we get into the MVM and the Clatcher's comments, I wanted to bring up the Magician's cover photo for this season again. If you guys want to follow along, just Google the Magician's and you'll see there's a cover photo of them. They all look like <clears throat> they all look like statues. It's an open book with the Munjack and then our characters above it. Black background. Looks really epic. The characters, they look like they're stone. So I wanted to break this down with you, Christina. Obviously, we have the book. That's the quest book that we've been following along. One of the best quoted parts of this season when Q says, we're in the quest now. And then above that is the Munjack. In all its glory, it's centralized. In the Munjack is Whitespire, their castle. And then in the middle, the main character in this is Julia. In between her hands is a key. This is the key with the triangle. That's the truth key. We know that that's her, that's basically her challenge, right? That's always been her challenge, this truth key. Behind that is the feathers from one of our first creatures of this season. One of our favorites, right? The great cock. Within those feathers is the grandfather clock. That is the doorway. Yep. And above that are rams. Two, ember and umber. The rams, in addition to being on top, like you're speaking of, are also nestled underneath Julia's elbows between her and Alice and her and Quentin. At least I think those are the rams again. Or are those dragons? I think I see the spiral of horns on the side of their head, much like they have on top. Yeah, I think you're right. So let's move around her. So that's the centralized, right? Center is always important when you talk about web design or graphic design. Um... And these are very important things. And Julia is right there in the middle. And we've been saying she's the one with the power. This is her season. She just has to find it. You would think her being centralized and holding what seems to be the most important key, that it would either be the key to greater magic, because that's a big part of her journey. What we're trying to do here is to restore fine magic, or it would be the last key. So it's weird that we put her and the truth key so centralized. Let's move to our left, her right. And there is Alice. And it looks like the key, and we might be wrong with these, but I believe the key she has in her hand is the key to greater magic. Yeah, it's hard because they didn't show that one as well. But also what I think it's important to note, because they look like they're carved out of stone, the only real color they have is in the gold. The gold pops a lot and seems to kind of represent something different on each one. For hers, it highlights what almost looks to be bonds. Like she has shackles around her wrist and that rope running between it. The way it's portrayed, it looks like it's tying her. Then above her is Elliot, and he's holding the illusion key, which we always knew. That's Elliot's key. And his crown, very prominent. This is his fate now. He's king of Fillory. Then above that, we have Katie, and she's holding a key we have yet to see. It's a weird shape. Almost looks like an upside-down chess piece. So I'm curious of what that will be. And that's something we'll find out soon, right? Surrounding her, and on the right side, is more ram horns. So again, Ember and Umber. Maybe they're not dead. We've discussed this before. I'm, I'm, I'm very curious. Going further up to the top, the highest part of this design is the Fairy Queen. Who really has no gold on her at all and isn't holding anything. And to her other side is Dean Fogg, same thing, kind of. Well, his goggles or his glasses are gold. Yeah, they're 
they're kind of reflecting a little bit of gold on them. So now let's work our way down. We have what I believe is Penny out of process of elimination. Yeah, you're right, because he's wearing this scarf. But man, that really doesn't look like him. I guess Katie doesn't really look like her either. But he's got the scarf very prominently gold. And what key is he holding? Another unknown, right? It's like two circles. That's the one we just got? Yeah. Looking at the design of what Penny has in his hand is the one we just got this episode. Which we don't have a name on, but it's that fourth depression monster key. I wonder why he would have that key. You would think that would be Q's, wouldn't you? Yeah, unless Q's is going to be the last key, also an unknown. But before we get to Q, let's go to Margot. She has the crown as well, and I like how she's parallel with Elliot. That makes sense. And she has a key, again, we have yet to see, but we know that she, we know that we were correct in saying that every key represents one of our characters. So I'm curious to see what hers is. Oh my goodness. If you look at Margot's a little more closely, it's hard because of the way it's being portrayed, but inside of there almost looks like the female symbol, the gender symbol, which is the circle with a line underneath it that looks like a cross so you would have to turn it upside down to see the female one circle on bottom cross on top and then kind of overlapping that on the top could be the male symbol the circle leading up to a little arrow or triangle that's kind of popping off the top of her key looks like an arrow triangle on the top of her key Hmm. so a bit embedded but what we've been talking about with the whole is her identity as a female important to the fairy queen she uses that a lot as a source of her power so it would kind of be fitting if it played into her challenge this is also kind of cool and i don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole not even knowing if these are the symbols but if you look into this the origin of the male female symbols come from two planets and olympian gods they're ancient and have associations back to the dawn of civilization where people observed the movements of heavenly bodies, the sun, the planets, and eventually came to believe there was this causal relationship. That's when they started to associate their gods with the heavenly bodies and name them Mercury, Venus, Mars, Zeus, who was Jupiter. And each heavenly body, along with a god, was also associated with a particular metal. So, for example, the sun was associated with gold. Funny that we're talking about that here. With these metals, the Greeks could refer to them by their respective gods' names, and they were spelled with a combination of letters that got broken down into shorthand symbols. And that's actually kind of where you get alchemy as well. Now, I know if you're just listening and not looking at these images, this might make no sense. So I do implore you to check this out. What we're going to do is I'm going to tweet this after the episode is out, and you can get the picture from there, from our Twitter, at CKC Podcast. It's really fun to go down this and just try to... See if we can figure out the puzzle just from this one image. But lastly is Q on the bottom right. And he's holding a key that, again, we have not seen yet. Out of seven, we have now found four. So there's three that we haven't seen yet. And he's holding one of them. And it looks like an X with a line right down the middle of it horizontally. I'm wondering what the meaning of that is. And I'm wondering what his particular key, because you would think that the one that he, again, to reiterate, Because you would think the one that he got this episode would be Q's key. It's one of his biggest challenges. I mean, he tried to kill himself before, years ago. 
Yeah, and we do know that each one was given what represents the greatest challenge to them, and that would have to be their quest. But we weren't sure necessarily that's who it was going to ultimately connect with. There were some questions about it. For instance, Julia found the truth key. It's having a lot of meaning to her. She finds it very difficult. But we used that primarily to reveal the truth in the form of Penny. And Elliot was the one who was able to use it without as much difficulty as other people. So will overcoming it be the same as owning it and that being your key? By the way, in looking up these symbols, the triangle inside of a circle was one of the Illuminati symbols, ancient occult, that's Julia's. So I want to do a little more digging into these symbols and what they could be. Yeah, so definitely check out that picture. I think it's very important that what's centralized is Julia, and around her is the great cock's feathers, the clock, the rams, the munjack under her, and white spire. Very intriguing. Well, and if you remember what the great cock said to Elliot, it was, you will need your friends for these quests. And we keep talking about Julia going off and kind of trying to deal with her own shit, her own challenges, not really being a part of the group. So is that message going to end up needing to resound with her, all of these people that are around her? Oh man, that was fun. I hope it wasn't crazy or weird for anyone else. We love to do that kind of stuff. Try to dissect things, you know? If you've listened to Mr. Robot, previous Game of Thrones, you know we kind of tend to go off on tangents where there could be some hidden meaning behind it. But let's move on now to our rating. And again, this year we're doing our rating in crowns because it's only fitting. So I really enjoyed this episode. Of course, not as much as last episode or Be the Penny. Those were my favorites. But it's still going to get a high number. I'm grading it an 8.9 crowns. You're going to think that I did the same thing as last time, but I swear to you this was in here from before. I give it a nine keys. My goodness. Oh, I said crowns. I meant keys. Oh, you used season two terminology, I did. Look Jason. at me. I'm awesome. Fuck. <laughs> so it's, again, point one higher than you. You're just trying to best me. I was trying to go somewhere down the middle. I liked it a lot more than episodes two and three, which I gave eight and 8.5, but a little less, like I said, than five and six, which were in the high nines. So I split the difference. No, it makes sense. Listen, this was a great episode. There was so much that happened. We saw a dragon. We saw Q being a hero and also just being a, a blabbermouth, very gullible Q that we know. A lot happened and it was very entertaining. I watched it twice. But again, last episode I watched three times and I could watch it a couple more times too. It, this one I want to watch certain scenes over and over. That that whole Quentin scene with the Jason Ralph performance, yeah. I want to watch about three more times so I can pick up on all <laughs> of it. And I definitely want to go back to that scene with the incubus That was funny. for the laughs. So now let's move on to where our clatchers are part of it. And before we go to the MVM, speaking of clatchers... I wanted to give a congratulations to our two Patreon members who won this month's CKC gear giveaway. For the new member raffle, our winner was Chase. And for the existing pool, it was Erica. Congratulations to both. And remember, all you got to do is go to coffeeclatchcrew.com, click on gear and pick anything from our gear store, and it's yours for free. And if you haven't become a member yet, it's very easy. Again, go to coffeeclatchcrew.com, click on Patreon, 
Check out what we have there. Every month we give you a bonus episode where we talk about news, more private things, more personal stuff, behind the scenes, bloopers that are pretty funny when I get a little goofy. We've been up here for three hours. Things get a little messy. We always have a list of different topics, but sometimes we go a little more in depth with one, have like a main topic that we expand upon. And I have some interesting information for you in the next upcoming bonus all about your brain. And the power of it, the crazy things that go into it from the structure to what it can do. So I'm excited to talk about that. Yeah, we get deep into like the science of things. Christina gets to talk about her background in psychology. There's so many things that we really enjoy doing for our bonus. We also have our monthly movie reviews, which our Patreon members vote on. We go to the movies, we watch it, and we give an extensive review. Oh, we have excellent notes on the movie that we just went to see. This is going to be a lot of fun. It was, of course, the part three to our trilogy coverage, The Maze Runner, Death Cure. And plenty more that happens when you're a Patreon member. And remember, you don't just get extra content from us, but you also know that you're helping Christina and myself continue to deliver free podcasts and work our asses off to have some fun and entertain you and ourselves. By becoming a member, giving a dollar or $4 or $5, the more of you who do that, the more money we'll have to get a better studio, to get rid of one of our other jobs. We both work four jobs each so that we can survive in New York. And if we could, yeah. So if we could get the Patreon membership high enough where we can get rid of at least one of our jobs, we can continue to add more content and more free podcasts that everyone can enjoy. But that's enough. Let's go on to our MVM. Like every week, we go on our Twitter, at CKC Podcast, and we ask our Clatchers, who is your MVM, Most Valuable Magician, for this episode? And this week, we had four characters to choose from. Quentin, Elliot and Margot, Julia, and Poppy. Coming in at number four with 6% was Poppy. Yep. Understandable. She's not very likable at this point. Makes a lot of sense. Although acted very well, good character, just kind of a bitch right now. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be interesting, though, with her moving forward. Coming in at three, the center of our poster, 17% Julia. I'm actually surprised with her giving away magic that she got so many votes. Well, I think it's more that our Clatchers are picking up on her importance. Oh, for sure. But, you know, when we do MVM, a big part of that is who did we like this episode? Or who did... The most stuff. (laughs) And by that, we usually mean magic or advancement or good things for our characters. Who did good? (laughs) But sometimes it's about overcoming your personal things, which makes a lot of sense for our number two at 27%, Quentin. And I am actually shocked that he didn't win this one. Yeah, this was definitely one of Quentin's strongest episodes, but it's also understandable that Elliot and Margot would get 50% of the votes because, one, it's magic when they're together on screen, and two, they found out, finally, for us, what the Fairy Queen is up to. And also, they just, Prince Fuckface, they really put a number on him, which was great. They had a win for me. I think whenever they, whenever a character winds up with a big loss at the end of the episode, that leaves an impression on my mind, so I'm often remiss to have them be MVP or MVM in this circumstance, finding out the seemingly insurmountable challenge they're up against with the fairy queen and this army she has growing kind of put me off of that. Yeah, I see what you're saying. But 
let's talk about the key saying. We have depth and character. <laughs> it's almost as if Elliot and Margot are realizing what we already realized for them. The fact that they've grown so much since season two. They're no longer the party animals. Elliot's no longer the person that escapes through drugs and alcohol. They have stepped it up. Who even are we anymore? And yes, of course, they're going to miss the fun that they used to have. But I think eventually they'll be able to do both. A couple of comments were left on our polls from our Clatchers. Melly wrote, I just love the witty back and forth between Margot and Elliot. I liked how they both helped each other in this episode, and I can't wait to see how the Fairy Queen will be mad once she realizes some of her babies have been kidnapped. Mara says I gave it to Q because it must have been so damn difficult for someone with his history to withstand the verbal abuse of that key. But Margot's scheme had me in tears. Do you like teeth? <laughs> Perfect. Well, we mirror both of those sentiments. Let's talk about our MVMs. I'm going to go first. Okay. And I'm going with Quentin. This was definitely his breakout episode. I mean, I feel like he's been breaking out every episode a little more, a little more, and this was his time. Jason Ralph acted the shit out of this episode. You had to squeeze that in there because you've known since we started watching the episode I was giving it to Quentin because I was ranting and raving about his performance. This is the best Jason Ralph ever. Yeah, listen, if I went <laughs> with Margot and Elliot, you would have yelled at me because I've done Elliot uh, three times already. I'm so happy I'm a lose-lose for me here. I'm happy that you didn't break your rule, <laughs> your ban. It's, let's just reiterate one more time. That's your rule, not mine. I'll vote Elliot every goddamn episode if I want to. But this time, it's Quentin. Yeah, now, do they count twice if they're on a pairing is my question because we both went Elliot Q last time. I think that's a different Okay. All right. See, I'm winning. Maybe that's the loophole. You guys see I'm winning? (laughs) So congratulations to Quentin on my half and Christina's. And congratulations to Elliot Margo as far as the Clatchers are concerned. So thank you so much, everyone, for voting. Remember, if you haven't voted yet, just go to at CKC Podcast. Follow us there. And every week, we're there to give you a poll. And join in on the fun with the crew. We just have a few more Clatchers comments. At S. Lerner wrote to us about last episode, and I love this. Based on Quentin's statement and a rough estimate of the number of tiles in each of Q&E's 15 piles, so he's talking about the The mosaic. mosaic. Yeah. I have accurately determined that a shitload equals 888. So me being, I just wasn't thinking enough. I was confused. I was like, wait, 888, that doesn't make sense. So I wrote to him, I thought Q said there were a ton of zeros. And he wrote back, of course, explaining, and obviously I'm an idiot. Yes, around 900 zeros. That's one with 888 zeros after it. I would say that qualifies as a shit ton. That is a shit ton. One plus 888 zeros. I wish I had that kind of money, huh? So, of course, it's going to take years to figure out, you know, there's so many different designs you can come up with. I can't even think about that many many zeros. So, thank you for that. I appreciate that. That's That's very fun. And Connor wrote to us on Twitter and said, we have depth and character. Best quote. I agree. I really enjoyed that quote this episode. Oh, man. So, that concludes this episode. We really enjoyed this. We might have some really exciting news to tell you. But I don't want to say anything yet in case it falls through. But we'll let you know as soon as it's definite. You will enjoy this, I promise. 
But until then, we're going to go into a little bit of spoiler territory. We're going to talk about next episode. So if you don't want to be spoiled, we want to say thank you for listening. Let your friends know about us. Tweet about us. Facebook about us. Let's make our army bigger so that if the Fairy Queen comes after us, we'll be set. This is a very brief synopsis for next episode, which is episode seven, Poached Eggs. Margot makes a bold stand against the Fairy Queen. Quentin and Penny try to retrieve a lost item. So Margot's stand, I don't know if that's going to involve her teaming up with the Stone Queen and her mysterious weapon, or actually using those egg hostages that she took, or if the Lorians will, in fact, come in to help them. And Quentin and Penny have got to be retrieving that lost key, although I still can't imagine how they're going to get back together in the same place. Well, Margot makes a bold stand against the Fairy Queen. Well, anything she does is pretty bold. Um, I, I hope it's not an empty... What? I'm sorry. The title of the episode is Poached Eggs. Oh, my goodness. She makes a bold stand. There we uh, go. That just clicked. Wow. <laughs> well, I think we're about ready to see our heroes go against this queen and start making some moves. Just unfortunately, I feel like we're not going to get all of our heroes together, working together to accomplish these goals. I don't know if we will all season, really. Although we were warned that they would each kind of have their own quest and told, though, that they have to work together. And they are in certain circumstances. You know, one thing I really like about these episodes is that we know that the main through line is to find these keys. That's the main goal, right? But they do manage to make this show not just about that. We watched season one of the Shannara Chronicles, and we started watching season two, and that's one thing that they don't do very well. There's, you know, there's one main goal, but everything else doesn't meet, seem to matter. And what the Magicians does is they have that one through line, but also all these other things happening, and they all seem to matter that much as well. And you're connected to all of them, to all of the characters. You you care what happens, and they do incorporate all of these very mature themes that yeah. shows like the Shannara Chronicles are, are for sure geared towards a younger audience. Yeah. And it's just so funny. They, their humor is right up our alley and, and their pop culture references. It just fits perfectly for us. This is definitely my favorite season. I'm really excited for next Wednesday and uh, I hope you guys are too. This weekend we are recording our bonus and our movie cast because we have to make time and room for some other magicians cast that we can't talk about yet so until next week this round's on me we have depth and character this round is on me please hang up and try again